This podcast is sponsored by Alt-Legal. Alt-Legal, easy to use IP docketing with powerful automation, deadline calculation, and reporting. Hello and welcome to the Alt Trademarks Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Salmondinger. On this episode, I was joined by Suzanne Moskowitz. Suzanne is a solo practitioner working in Cleveland, Ohio. You can find out more about her firm online at themoskowitzfirm.com or reach her by phone at 216-339-1111. You can also find out more about AltLegal on Twitter at AltLegalHQ and at AltLegal.com. Thank you for joining us and enjoy. Hi, Suzanne. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Hannah. Okay, so the first thing to get out of the way for this episode is that today we're going to talk about the recent uh, Slants case uh, that was just before the Supreme Court, which will make this our very first not suitable for work episode, or I guess rather it's only not suitable for work if your work doesn't embrace some light vulgarity and, and bad language. Great. Actually, Hannah, can I start with a joke or kind of like a word puzzle that my kids told me just this morning? Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Okay, Hannah. Take out the letter F in the word way. There's no F in way. <laughs> exactly. There's no F in way. So if language like this bothers your listeners, then they can shut this <laughs> off right now. But I promise there will be no gratuitous F-bombs, but there will be some F-bombs, but they are necessary for my content today. Is that okay? I think that's totally okay. Um, but let's start a little bit farther back at the beginning and talk a little bit about your background as uh, an attorney. Currently, you're a solo practitioner working in Cleveland, Ohio, and you claim to be the happiest lawyer that you know. So how did you get there, um, and how did you decide to become a lawyer in the first place? Excellent. Well, when I was little, I was really into consumer protection. There was this show on, like my whole childhood, called Fight Back, and all they did was like debunk myths and scams and packaging claims and claims that were in commercials. And I just, I just absolutely loved it. And I don't know if it was because I'm an immigrant's child or if something, if I was, had a trauma involving something in a cereal box, not matching what was on the front. But either way, I was very into this false advertising consumer protection. And then I read more as I got older. I learned about Ralph Nader and I was very into him before people started hating him. And <laughs> All that, and plus, I was you know pretty entrepreneurial kid. I was big into lemonade stands and maximizing profit. And even when I was in college, I had my first uh, foray into copyright infringement, where me and some friends decided to sell some knockoff Calvin and Hobbes shirts. Um, so you know, all of this came together. It seemed to be uh, a good, good, good start. But actually, going back to high school, I had an internship at the Better Business Bureau, and that was great. I really learned a lot, and it really got me very inspired. Again, on the consumer protection front, I went to Cornell where I studied. My major was in the consumer economics department. So it kind of combined econ classes, marketing classes. And again, I was very much on the track to do something involving either consumer protection or marketing. Um, after college, my first job was at Newsweek magazine. I actually ended up in the legal department, which was great. And what I found was trademark protection was a huge part of what they did. And so even before law school, I was learning a ton about trademark law in New York. 
but I knew that I still wanted to go to law school. So how did you end up deciding to go to law school, but then, um, you know, getting to where you are now, which is practicing IP law in Cleveland? Sure. So at the time, I lived in New York, and that was for a few years, but I, it was clear that I was going to go to law school. It was actually great. The lawyers I was working with at Newsweek were very supportive of me going to law school. And I was very excited when I got into Stanford. It was, you know, it's always a tech boom, but in the early 2000s, it was a huge tech boom. Mm-hmm. I had just great professors, great classmates, and I also had the opportunity to work as a summer associate um, in the IP and uh, technology departments at two firms, Wilson Cincini and Dorsey and Whitney. Um, so I was actually going to start work in an IP group in Seattle. But at the time, my husband had an opportunity to go work overseas. So we packed up our bags and moved to Ireland. But after a few months there, it was clear that I'd be happier practicing law in the United States. So I had this, I call it my accidental sabbatical. <laughs> um, but after that, we decided, okay, it would be best for certain family reasons if we gave Cleveland a chance. I mean, I'll tell you before that, I was thinking there is no way I'm ever going back to Cleveland. Where I grew up, I want to be as far away as possible. But as I, you know, I could go on and on about Cleveland, too. Um, it's been a great place to live, and it's a really great place to practice law. And so now that you've been doing it, uh, you know, at least for a little while, what, what do you like the best about being a lawyer um, and, you know, being a solo practitioner on your own? Sure. Well, I think it's really fun to help businesses improve and boost their brands. And I get paid to do that. What's really nice too is, in a way I'm like a consultant, but what I like better about law than consulting is there's this thing called the law. We have the Lanham Act. There's an actual guidelines to what I do, and that kind of gives me some authority, which I like too. Um, also, because you know, being a lawyer can be a good profession, and even though... I think I charge pretty fair rates, especially compared to my classmates at big firms. I'm pretty compensated well, and that's nice. It's easy to have a good work-life balance when you are in control of your own practice. Right. And then how did you decide, so when you were making that decision to come back and start working in Cleveland, how did you decide uh, to go out on your own versus, you know, joining a firm or doing something else? Sure, sure. Well, I did. I originally worked at a firm for several years, and it was actually a great experience. And it was actually a very family-friendly firm. But even the most flexible law firm environment can be really daunting when you have small kids. And so I came back. I worked for several years. I had two maternity leaves. I came back, and I just felt like I wasn't really parenting or lawyering to the best of my ability. And I wanted to do better. I was used to doing things well. So this was a little bit before there were many, many people going solo. This was in Mm -hmm. 2010. So when I went in to quit, it was pretty surprising to the people that I worked with. But at the time, I felt, you know, pretty confident that it would be okay. At the time, I was still married, and my husband had also quit a big job at a big company. So I felt like if he could do it, I could do it too. And that entrepreneurial instinct kicked back in. Right. So then what do you like about running your own practice? Are there, like, you know, certain things that you love about it? how has it been so far? Well, you know, I'm an extremely power-hungry person. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I, but I do, I like being in charge. I mean, when I worked at a firm, again, it was a great place. But there were things that I felt that if I ran a business, I would run differently, just in terms of flexibility. So, you know, I work with tons of business clients every day. 
But I have the ability to, to do a lot more work for nonprofits and community organizations and kind of come up with some non-traditional pricing arrangements for, for startups. I can basically do anything I want, and I can also focus on what I like the most, and that's the IP transactions, trademark prosecution, brand protection, and just general things in technology. And if I don't know the area, I can say no to it. I don't have to be get up to speed on something that's not interesting to me. Or mm-hmm. if there's a client who I think might be a pain in the ass, <laughs> I can say no to them. Oh, wait, wait, that was just a warning, though. <laughs> is, is it okay to say? Is it okay to say? Yeah, that? yeah, please. Okay. We, now we've warned everyone. For those, yeah. <laughs> for those who have just tuned in, this is an explicit <laughs> podcast. Okay, thank you. No, but I'm, I'm lucky. I get 99% of the time I'm really doing work that I really enjoy, find very intellectually stimulating. And then my schedule is so flexible. Basically, as long as I have my laptop, I can be anywhere. And I do, you know, most of my clients are actually outside of Ohio. And so I'm traveling to the coast all the time. And I'm able to go and see clients, see friends. It's a really great arrangement. And that's why I'm the happiest lawyer. (laughs) And you mentioned before, um, but you're also juggling the practice with uh, being a mother and having kids. So how does that affect your work-life balance in general? Sure, sure. Did, did pain in the ass make you think of my kids? Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's not nice. I know a minute ago I was talking about my maternity leave and my little babies, and now it's like they're horrible, precocious t- tweens. But no, my boys are a lot of fun. They're almost 9 and 11 right now, and I actually really do want to spend time with them. But there's no question that you know parenting is harder than lawyering. And a lot of times I use my lawyering as, as an escape from parenting or an escape in general. Um, you know, again, these, are, these kids are funny. They, they, they know that I have work to get done and they still try to get my goat. You know, the other day I'm at a red light, which is not, not a green light. And I was transcribing a response to a message from a client because it was time sensitive. And I was trying to say, and my kids know they should be quiet. They should, you know, when a mom's doing work, they're oh. going to be good kids. And I, and I start transcribing it. And they know exactly what I'm doing. They, they understand. And, I, and I'm trying to say something about having concerns. And I say, I have some. And then my little one, he goes, monkeys. And then, of course, <laughs> that comes up in the message. And, of course, I caught it because I know my kids are naughty. But still, um, it's, it's generally, I mean, if, if, that was, if that was the only thing that made parenting hard, that would be great. But, you know, things, are, things can be challenging. But work is an escape for me, for sure. And it's nice because I deal with adults and they're rational and I can use logic and I listen to them and they listen to me and then they do the things I say. And, you know, <laughs> can't exactly say that about kids. Um, so it is, it is an escape. But there's never a time that my kids, are, I'm not thinking about my kids in, in the work that I do. I mean, I have a lot of clients who do a lot of fun things. I have a lot of clients who are fun people who do things that are boring to my children. So, you know, I can't help but think when a new client calls, like, is this going to be fun for my kids? Are we going to get to go on a tour of a popsicle factory? You know, <laughs> and so those are the kinds of things that, that, that are ways that I can bring it together and, and make it enjoyable for them. And they love to hear about some of the things I do, some of the stuff I do they think is pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I, I work a lot and my phone tends to be by my side at all times. And I try to be very responsive to my clients, which I think is you know, one of the reasons I can be successful. But you know, it drives my kids crazy that I'm always working. Um, but I'm, I am trying to get better at balancing things. Have you found any, like, you know, tips and tricks or hacks to sort of help you maintain the balance things that, that you know, make it a little easier at least? 
Sure. Well, certainly when I first started, I think the the quality of of the software that was available to automate things wasn't things like all legal, uh, which mm-hmm. I rely heavily on. Uh, those things weren't available, and and now just so many things, so many administrative tasks that I don't do on my own, and I. I had alt legal before I had my assistant, um, but hiring my assistant is a huge, a huge step for me in terms of increasing my productivity. Um, it should be pretty obvious, but I think a lot of solos try to do everything on their own, and it's silly. Um, it's absolutely, you know, there are so many ways to be more productive, and that's that's a big one for me. Uh, also, taking the help wherever I can get it. My parents. Um, are so wonderful and generous with their time, with feeding my kids, um, mm-hmm. doing things I don't like to do, like buying my kids clothing. Um, so <laughs> getting, taking advantage of help that I can get, I, I really appreciate. One other thing is simply knowing what I can get away with in terms of multitasking. I have some clients who I've been working with for a long time, and they're friends, and they know that I have kids, and I know about their kids, and they can handle a little bit of background noise. There are some clients that probably don't appreciate children and maybe don't even know that I have kids. And so I can have, I can answer calls sometimes when my kids are home. Um, sometimes I have to put them in front of the iPads and tape their mouths shut, <laughs> but I find ways to make it work. And another part of running your practice, which we've talked about before, um, which I thought was a very funny comparison, is um, we talked about how you have to obviously find new clients. And you drew a comparison between finding new clients and dating. So can you talk a little bit more about that that parallel? Yeah, I mean, I went, that... you know, I went solo in life, you know, shortly after I went solo in my firm. So, you know, a lot of things were happening at one time, um, which <laughs> also <laughs> made life a little bit complicated. Um, but, you know, just little, little things like you take a client out to lunch and then for a minute there, you know, you can forget <laughs> that it's a client lunch and then the check <laughs> comes and you don't know who you're supposed to pay and you right. remind yourself, I'm the lawyer. I pay for lunch. I'm the lawyer. I pay for lunch. Um, you know, also little things like when I when I get a new client inquiry, which happens, you know, pretty often, which is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I can't help but get excited. It's it's right. nice to hear from someone. It's nice that somebody refers work to me, and that's really how I grow my business. But I also try to be really careful not to be over eager. You know, so if I get a message from somebody, and even if I, let's say I have five minutes right then to respond, I have to remind myself, like, play it cool, Moskowitz, play it cool. You don't want to seem too desperate. Some of these, some of these lessons work in all aspects (laughs) of life. I think that's a really funny comparison. So shifting gears just a little bit, the other topic I wanted to talk to you about today was the recent uh, slants case, uh, Matalvi Tam. Uh, This case, as expected, ended up raising a lot of questions. Uh, so after the slants won um, before the Supreme Court, there was a flurry of colorful applications submitted to the USPTO. Uh, so first, can you speak just a little bit on what the decision means and what it means for people who are looking to file applications using language that traditionally would have been viewed as unacceptable in a trademark application? There's been a lot written about the case, but let me just give a little bit of background. Last month, the Supreme Court affirmed the right of an Asian American band to protect the name slants at the trademark office. So even though this name was found to considered to be disparaging to a certain group of people. So I view this as a victory for the First Amendment, which I'll explain. Um, so the law that's at issue here is Section 2A of the Lanham Act. And that law, 
they call it the disparagement clause, but it's really about three things, things that are scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. But this particular case was focused on disparaging. It's also important to note that the law does not include a definition of scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. And so what was happening was the examiners were just applying the law incredibly inconsistently. I have one client years back who successfully filed the mark F-bomb, that's F dash bomb. See, I told you there'd be an F-bomb um, <laughs> several years ago. Uh, that was in connection with some feminist publications, actually. And we were concerned that it would be rejected because so many of these were being rejected. And marks like Big Pecker brand were rejected because the examiner thought, well, this might make people think of body parts. So there were so many marks that were rejected. And the inconsistency was a huge problem. Uh, kind of in the past few years, these weren't my marks, but in the few years, there was well, only one of these two marks received an office action uh, refusal based on it being disparaging. One party filed, have you heard that Satan is a Republican? Mm-hmm. And the other filed, the devil is a Democrat. So in this case, I don't know if you can guess, it's not obvious, but devil is a Democrat was allowed, <laughs> but uh-huh. not, the, not the anti-Republican one. So both were for clothing and so let's be clear, a lot of these marks that, are, that were filed and are being filed are never going to be eligible for protection anyhow because they're just designs on T-shirts, which would be refused as mere ornamentation. Going back to the case, the government defense was that... So how did this case, the Mattel versus Tam, end up turning out? Okay, so in this case, the government was saying that trademarks equal government speech. And as such, and not private speech, government was able to have a little more discretion to set these arbitrary limits. Well, they didn't say arbitrary, but to set these limits. Um, but Justice Alito came out and said, trademarks are private, not government speech. And this is really important. If we, there's a real slippery slope here, potentially. If, government, if a trademark can be government speech, then let's say a trademark which is filed by a private individual, trademarks, things like, you know, this is a real trademark, a recent one, you know, Dicks by Mail. If Dicks by Mail filed for novelty chocolate, not, not my client, um, <laughs> if, if that's considered government speech, then gosh, anything can be. Anybody, a, a person who goes to a public park or speaks at a public university, it just opens this whole, whole door for government um, restricting free speech. And that's, you know, clearly a huge problem. So, you know, say what you will about what, what does it mean to be government speech in 2017 in light of everything that's been going on. This is the right decision. So is it safe to say that the case ended up raising a lot of questions by answering the specific one that was before the court? I mean, to me, the number of applications that were filed right after the decision implies that many people think the floodgates have sort of opened and then you know, it's kind of a a free-for-all maybe, but the opinion doesn't necessarily support that. Absolutely. So it it seems to have opened the door for marks that are potentially disparaging of a group. So things like Redskins, which we can talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, There's still this question of scandalous and immoral marks. And, And so many of the ones that are being filed now are scandalous and immoral. So there's actually another big case pending, and that's the Brunetti case, also known as the F-U-C-T case, or pronounced fucked, filed Mm -hmm. for clothing. So Brunetti is a skateboard artist, entrepreneur, 
He says that F-U-C-T stands for friends you can't trust. So Uh the question is, you know, is this scandalous? And what is scandalous? The USPTO generally conflates scandalous with vulgarity. And they say that vulgarity doesn't have to to rise to the level of obscenity, which really means nobody knows exactly. Uh, Another thing that they say is the standard relates to what the general public thinks is scandalous at the time of filing. But again, that's kind of circular too. And then we can come up with tons of examples. I mean, if you say no to F-U-C-T, what about F-C-U-K? That was the French connection mark you saw in clothing a lot several years ago. That was approved. So now the USPTO is, after the slants ruling, has issued an advisory notice that scandalous marks are still on hold pending the resolution of the Brunetti case, which is going back to the Circuit Court of Appeals. So I'll be watching that issue closely because I could see it affecting some of my clients. Yeah. Can you give maybe some examples of some of your clients or some pending marks you know that might might be affected? Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, A client of mine filed the mark, make my pussy safe again, in the class for retail services, planning Mm -hmm. to sell a number of products um, that will ultimately benefit some reproductive right to organizations. Mm-hmm. So unlike all these other marks that I'm looking up that are actually officially suspended pending the resolution of these cases, my application has really just been in a holding pattern. Unclear what's going on, and I don't know, maybe they just didn't know what the hell to make of it. You know, right. is it a vulgar mark, or is it disparaging to the president? It's really unclear, and I think that a lot of attorneys right now have a lot of a lot of marks on hold. Um, and there were so many marks, as you know, there was a real land rush here. There were so many marks filed at the time, around and after, right after the slants ruling. I mean, you could call it a literal shitstorm, really. I mean, there was poop party, Mister Shithead. I mean, you can just type in the word shit with an asterisk after it, and you'll see. <laughs> Uh, do you have any guesses as to what's going to happen to those applications? Have you had to kind of kind of guess as to where the USPTO will, will go with that or the courts will go with that? Man, I mean, it's a mess, but I think that it seems because of the same basis for the Slans case, 2A is obviously problematic. So I think it will probably end up being scrapped entirely. So what may happen is a lot of marks that people don't like will be registered. And so is that the end of the world? I don't think so. I think people can rely on people's kind of common sense and market forces that nobody's going to buy things that are horrible or damaging. And also, if, if things are associated with real hate, there's other laws that, you know, keep, that protect people from hateful actions. So, you know, I, I don't, my, my team, my Cleveland Indians baseball team is doing very well, but I can't look at their mascot, Chief Wahoo. So mm-hmm. I make sure that I personally don't buy any products that have it. That, that doesn't mean I think they don't have the right to register this mark to protect the brand from counterfeiting, et cetera. But market forces are responding. Even, even this week, Tops that makes baseball cards, they've decided that they're going, going to remove Chief Wahoo from all their playing cards. And that's great. And, and as a consumer, I'm more likely to buy these cards because they don't have these products on them.
Right. And there's also been some recent, um, I read about one case in particular where a man filed uh, a couple of trademark applications for swastikas and racial slurs. How do you feel about those those types of kind of ancillary applications? Yeah, I mean, I think these people, again, they're trying to present themselves as doing a good thing for society, that they're going to, you know, clear these marks and keep them, you know, lock them up, lock them away from other people. But unfortunately, they seem to have a fundamental misunderstanding of trademark law. I mean, there's a real issue of using these common sim- symbols to as something that the public actually associates with the origin, with that company. Mm-hmm. And then there's the issues of ornamentation, too. You can't just get a registration by putting something on a shirt or on a flag. It's got to be an actual brand associated with the company. So okay. I think, you know, I can't help but question the true motives of these of these people. And it doesn't surprise me that whenever the law changes, there's going to be some kind of land rush. Um, but I really don't think they are going to have the positive effect they're supposedly trying to achieve. Right. Yeah, it's something we'll just have to keep an eye on as as more decisions come down. And I'll I'll link to some information about that Brunetti case too, um, since that seems like it's one of the the most important ones that's pending uh, currently. Um, and and that that's it. So to wrap up, I like to ask guests some rapid fire questions, just a lightning round uh, for fun. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite app? Well, if I'm going to be honest, what do I waste most of my wasted time on? <laughs> um, I tend to flip to Facebook a lot. I know I should be beyond <laughs> Facebook, um, but it has everyone and everything, including my clients, some news, updates, people's babies. I mean, I don't actually post much, but I still love Facebook. I can't help it. <laughs> and where do you get your uh, IP news? Um, I do read Twitter. I don't post very often. I know I probably should, but when you're busy, busy, sometimes it's hard. Uh, I'm working on that. I, I also really like Lexology. I get a daily update that has, it's essentially a bunch of client alerts written by summer associates, <laughs> but uh-huh. it's okay. I think it's, I think it's not fake news. And it, people do a good job, law firms do a good job of explaining things. And I like those summaries. Yeah. Um, do you have any productivity hacks or things that you do when you know you have to get, you know, a bunch of work done? Sure, sure. Well, it's really very easy to get distracted, to get distracted by email. So I uh, change my email so I don't get alerts on my phone and on my laptop. That's really important. So I have to pull my email I also uh, now, past few years actually, have been using a standing desk, and I do think just by standing, you get things done more efficiently because mm-hmm. you're more focused, and it's also obviously better for your better for your back. Right. <laughs> um, and the last one is, what's a good piece, or even maybe the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, it took me. I've heard this over and over again, but it took me a little too long to really put it in place, and maybe it's my immigrant mentality, but. You need to spend money to make money. I mean, I had no concept at first about anything except for low overhead, save money, pass along savings to my clients. And now I realize I'm you know, spending money on some pieces of software. I'm spending money much more on an assistant, a paralegal. And these things make a huge difference and absolutely have increased my bottom line. Great. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Suzanne. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners before we sign off? 
I just want to encourage more people to go solo. I think there's a ton of work out there, and it's a great community of solo attorneys, not just in intellectual property law, but other areas as well. You know, I feel very lucky that I can do what I love, have fun, and have flexibility. I don't think I would have been able to do that if I wasn't trained properly by really smart people. And I had the benefit of several years at large firms. So if you know what you're doing, I think you can go out there and do a great job and join a community of solos that's very supportive and encouraging. And I'm happy to be one of the people that you can feel free to reach out to if you're thinking about going solo. And on that note, if they do want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do so? Sure. Um, Well, you can go to my website and get my email address from my website at themoskowitzfirm.com. Or you can call me. My phone number is 216-339-1111. Perfect. And I'll put those, um, those contact methods in the show notes as well. Thanks so much, Suzanne. Thank you, Hannah. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. That's this week's episode. Thank you for joining us and see you next time.